following message is from the 2021 Leader Summit in Louisville, Kentucky. For more information on Harbor Network, please visit www.harbornetwork.com. You know you live by faith when they do that and have your wife do your introductions by, <laughs> by video. All facts, except that little remark about kale. That demon weed. <laughs> I only eat kale when she sneaks it into my food. <laughs> Having been raised on collard greens, I know the difference. <laughs> it's a joy to be with you guys tonight. It's a real honor. Thank you, brothers, for welcoming us and encouraging us uh, in life and in ministry and feeding us in so many ways, the friendship of the Harbor Network to the Creek Collective and to me and John and others personally, uh, is really one of the richest treasures uh, of the Creek Collective the last year. One of the first persons we heard from, groups that we heard from when we launched the Creek Collective was Jamal and Harbor Network, saying we want to encourage you in any way we can, we want to support what you're doing, we're cheering you on, um, praise God for that work. And, and that was a real blessing to us. Can I be honest just for a moment? No matter what you say, I'm going to be honest just for a moment. <laughs> not, not every room nowadays is hospitable anymore, is it? I mean, even among Christians. We were readying ourselves to give a defense for why we wanted to see the gospel go to neglected black and brown neighborhoods. Because in some places, to say black and brown, I don't know, makes people angry. Makes them think you don't love yellow and white and whatever else. But we are wanting to lock arms with groups like Harbor Network to finish the mission. We praise God for all the work he's doing in planting churches. We just want him to plant them everywhere. And want to create ways in which people who want to go to the toughest places in our city sometimes to be supported, to be encouraged, to be built up in that work. And it was a great blessing to us to discover that we were not alone in that longing, that the Harbor Network longed for that too. Uh, and so it's just great honor uh, to be with you all tonight, to, to fellowship with you. We could have ended the conference after this morning's two sermons. So now you are slumming. <laughs> but we trust God will help us by his word. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for your great gospel and this great salvation that we have through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for what you have promised to us in Christ. Not merely forgiveness, but righteousness, holiness, redemption, glory, adoption, pleasure forevermore in your presence, a kingdom. All of your promises are yes and amen in Christ your Son. And we do cling to him by faith, and we do long for more of him. And we do ask, Lord, that you would help us to, in a genuine and lasting way, not only believe the truth intellectually, but experience it personally. To walk in it. Be changed by it to be helped by it, to be propelled into the word, into the world, 
with this great word of love. Lord, have your way with us tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I've been told that I have about 30 minutes tonight, so I'm taking my watch off, which means absolutely nothing. I want to ask you to turn with me to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I want to read for us the last paragraph of that chapter, verses 26 down to 31. But what I want to do is really spend all of our time in verse 30. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. If you have it, say amen. If you need more time, hurry up. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The Lord bless his word. Sometimes the thickest truth is packed in the thinnest line. Verse 30 is a short verse. It is, as it was, the sort of culmination of what Paul has been arguing in this first chapter. And it would be so easy to breeze by it. And yet, this one verse is about 12 months pregnant. It's full with power. Some things are 12 months pregnant, not, you know, women, not so much. Elephants, yeah. (laughs) It's full of power and promise. It's full, really, of a wonderful description of our salvation. Almost all of its constituent parts strung together here like so many pearls on a string. And then, as it were, sort of graciously clasped around the necks of the Corinthian Christians. Hung around our neck. That's true for us. Now, when we come to this text, I want to ask you a quick question that might need a longer answer. Here it is. Can facts be felt? Can facts be felt? More specifically, can spiritual facts be spiritually experienced? As in some sense, what we're talking about as we gather to think about renewal, 
We we are thinking about, as it were, the, the sort of refreshed kind of awareness, experience, living into, delighting in, enjoying the spiritual truths that God tells us about in his word. And so that little question, can facts be felt, turns out to be a profoundly important question in terms of how we live the Christian life. It's important for those who might be struggling just a little bit to connect their felt lived experience with the believed spiritual truths that they hold. For some of us, there's a wide gap between those two things. It can be so wide that we begin to doubt whether or not we have in fact experienced or come to believe genuinely the truth. For others of us, this relationship between fact and feeling, this relationship between believed truth and lived reality, it tempts us towards sometimes some, maybe some unhealthy mysticism. And an overemphasis on feeling. To the extent that we chase spiritual high to spiritual high. So we can err on either side of the spectrum. So how is it that we we come to taste and see the Lord is good? That we come to feel the pleasures of being in his presence? That we come to live lives of renewal and to lead renewal-driven ministries? I've been asked to talk tonight about justification and sanctification. Show of hands, how many of you have ever read a book on justification? How many of you have read a book on sanctification? How many of you have read multiple books on justification and sanctification? (laughs) Right, I got 30 minutes. (laughs) As I said, hospitality is lacking in some places, but... We will do the best that we can in the time that we have. Revisit with me verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification, and redemption. I want us to consider four facts from this text, which I hope in some ways is the kindling for renewal. Four facts that we want to very much sort of immerse ourselves in them until we drip with them. And more than being just wet and dripping with them in some outer sense until our souls are saturated with these truths. Until we find it as a kind of spiritual gasoline that with just a spark leads us to renewal. Here's the first fact. Salvation comes from God. Salvation comes from God. Notice what Paul says there. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. 
We know this, don't we? Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's so basic a fact, it's easily overlooked. It's so foundational a fact that if forgotten, then, beloved, renewal is almost impossible. Why is that? If we forget that God the Father is the one who places us in the body of Christ, he is the one who chose us from before the worlds began, if we forget that salvation belongs to the Lord, then we will be tempted to think that our place in Christ depends on our performance for Christ. And there's nothing like performance-driven religion to steal all the life, joy, and hope out of life. See, renewal-driven ministry demands we stop trying to put sweat equity into our salvation and really simply and wondrously enjoy God. The reason we preach the gospel, beloved, according to 1 John 1, verse 4, is so that we might have fellowship with one another and that our fellowship might be with God the Father and Jesus Christ. What a remarkable, stunning text. John says there, we have preached this gospel to you. We preached to you about this word that became life, that has appeared to us. And the reason that we would preach this to you is so that you might have fellowship with us. And then he's like, okay, don't miss this. And our fellowship is with the Father and with Jesus Christ. This salvation it's meant to bring us to God. This salvation is meant not merely to accomplish our forgiveness, but to bring us to God that we might enjoy him and delight in him. And yes, taste and see that the Lord is good to, to sort of verify the psalmist's testimony that in God's presence, there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. That we would witness that in our communion with him. Now, here's the question then. Are, are you enjoying the fact that God is the cause of your salvation. Are, are you clear on that? Are you reminding yourself of that? Does this truth lead us closer and closer to God? Or are we tempted to shrink away from God because somehow we've begun to think it depends on us? This is the thing about performance evaluations. We've all had them. It comes that time, three months, six months, one year anniversary on the job. You've got to go into your boss's office and you've got to tell them how great a job you've done to justify that raise. You are fully committed, prepared to embellish the truth because <laughs> you need that raise. And it's all about sort of highlighting the things that put you in the best light. Bring into mind for your employer a fact or two that they may have forgotten that commends you to them and to their reward. But you're also prepared to admit that you're not perfect. I mean, 
In fact, you have prepared to say, one real weakness is, I tried to be perfect. <laughs> Y'all know how this goes from the interviews to the performance evaluation, right? And there is this suspended experience, this dangling between your last paycheck and the one you hope to get. That's all determined by this boss and their favorable or unfavorable opinion of you. Performance-driven life leads to these agonizing experiences of self-evaluation and other evaluation. And didn't John Stark help us so wonderfully this morning? Exhorting us to hear the welcome of the Lord, the acceptance of the Lord, that in this great salvation which God architected before the worlds began and Christ accomplished on the cross and the Holy Spirit applies to us through faith and regeneration, in this great salvation, there are no performance reviews. There's no three-month, six-month, 10-year, 30-year performance review. The last performance review in the Christian life happened at Golgotha. If we want to have a sense of renewal, I think it begins with that. That salvation belongs to God, and he has given it to us, not based on performance, but out of his great love. Here's the second fact. Notice it there. You are in Christ Jesus. And because of him, you, Christians in Corinth, Christians here in Louisville, you are in Christ Jesus. Perhaps the sweetest teaching in all the Bible is union with Christ. It's a teaching so sublime, so tender, so painfully beautiful, and so urgently necessary that the only human analogy in existence is the covenant relationship of marriage. That's as close as we get to union with Christ, humanly speaking, is in this parable, this picture called marriage, which displays God's love for the church and the church's love for her Savior and Lord. And as beautiful as marriage is, it is weak and uninspired compared to the truth and the reality of this fact that you, beloved, and I, beloved, right now in this moment, we are seated together in the heavenly places with Christ. Right now in this moment, Christ lives in us by his spirit. Right now and forevermore, we are united together with Christ, never to be separated from him, never be to be separated from his love, never to be plucked out of the Father's hand. You are in Christ. You're not in Louisville. You ain't in Kentucky. What's Louisville and Kentucky compared to being in Jesus? Oh, that we would have some sense of this truth that our lives are hidden in Christ and that Christ dwells in us. And that we in Christ, as John writes in his gospel, are in the Father. I didn't play with dolls growing up. Maybe some of you did. 
But I was always fascinated with Russian dolls, which in one sense seems like a cruel trick to play on little children. You know what Russian dolls are? It's those little dolls that, you know, got this sort of shape. They, they normally look like weeble wobbles. I'm dating myself. Most of y'all don't know what weeble wobbles are. They weeble and they wobble, but they don't fall down. Some of y'all know. And, and, and these dolls, you, you take the head off, and then inside is another head just like the one you took off. And you take the head off, and there's another one, there's another one, there's another one. Again, it feels like torture to a little kid, but, but I, it's the picture that comes to mind for me when the Bible tells us that we are hidden in Christ, that we are somehow folded into his life, and his life overflows into ours. We just see this all over the Scripture, don't we? 2 Corinthians 1. Right? His suffering overflows into our lives, but, but so too does his comfort. I mean, just over and over again, the Bible keeps pressing upon this, this, this almost ineffable reality that we're not individuals anymore. Not strictly speaking. We're not isolated atoms circling the planet or something. We're not persons who exist entirely independent in our own resources, guarding our own lives. We forever exist in union with this Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us, who is the Lord of all creation, whose sacrifice as was prayed a moment ago, has cosmic implications. The renewal of the entire cosmos has been accomplished by the sacrifice and the resurrection of the Son. And we exist with him not just as objects of his love, but subjects of his life. When's the last time you thought about the fact that, beloved, you are in Christ Jesus? And this, too, I think helps us with something that John Stark was trying to help us with again when we sort of, you know, we talked about the, the kind of two ways we could present ourselves as anxiously curating an image and identity, hoping for the acceptance of others, or what he called this non-anxious presence. We know which is the better, don't we? And, and this truth that we are united with Christ, doesn't it seem particularly well designed to create in us a non-anxious presence? I mean, first of all, we're never alone. He's with us. Second of all, it's what, what image could we curate that would be better than Jesus? We can get out of the business of branding and building platforms and curating content. And we can just be. There's nothing quite as freeing as just being. United with Christ, our Lord. The Father has placed us in him and he is in us. Renewal isn't possible until we, on some sense, experience this union. Until the very ground of our existence it's Jesus. And the life of Christ overflows into us. That, beloved, I want to suggest, 
It's the makings of renewal. Let me give you a third truth. Jesus is our wisdom. Jesus is our wisdom. You see it there, how Paul puts it. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Well, who is this Jesus? Paul explains who Jesus became to us wisdom from God. He became to us wisdom from God. Now, this mention of wisdom is in some ways a segue for Paul's argument in this letter. Earlier in chapter 1, he's been arguing against the wisdom of this world, which in God's eyes is foolishness. Now he begins to talk about the wisdom that Jesus is. And over in chapter 2, verses 6 to around verse 16, he unpacks this wisdom for us, particularly as it relates to the cross. That the preaching of the cross is foolishness to the world, but to those of us who are being saved, to those of us who believe, it is the wisdom of God. That Christ represents, embodies, performs, achieves a kind of wisdom for us that confounds the wisest scholars, that baffles the most erudite academicians, that he is the kind of wisdom that actually this world could never anticipate. It's from a whole other order, an entirely different realm. He is wisdom for us from God. I think of how many times Paul thinks about this, meditates on this a little bit. Over in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, for example, where Paul talks there about being sure that we're not taken captive by vain philosophy, empty deceit. And by implication there, he's saying we should be taken captive with Christ. That Jesus should be, as it were, our philosophy. Why emphasize this? Why emphasize this, particularly as it applies to renewal? Well, don't we live in an era where lots of people seem to be vigorously searching for renewal? We live in an era where lots of people are turning to the wisdom and the philosophies of this world politically, ethically, economically, culturally, in every way. Non-Christians and Christians seem to be seeking some kind of renewal, some kind of uh, uh, a new life, some, some new approach, some new way. Beloved, all the new ways of the world are old in light of the cross. They're empty. They're powerless. They're they're incapable of bringing to us the the kind of renewal that we really want. And, And perhaps there's one here that I can serve tonight on this point because I do think that we can taste and feel and experience a kind of energy, a kind of enlivening, a kind of quickening that comes from some new idea we've discovered. Perhaps there's a body of knowledge, there's a, there's a body of wisdom that we have not studied before, and, and others seem to be talking about it, and it, it seems to be attractive and, and even powerful, and, and we give ourselves to it, and we begin to study it, and we begin to imbibe it. We begin to learn that language and to speak that language, and we burn for a little while. But the cool that comes after a false zeal is one of the coldest coals 
there really is. There are no substitutes for Jesus. There's no substitute for Jesus. He's telling us in this text that Christ is our all. That Christ is our life. That Christ is our wisdom. That the very way in which we think about living in the world is meant to be shaped and defined and governed by Jesus. That we are Jesus people in the best sense of the word. We are fools for the cross. We are fools for the gospel. We have turned away from this world's wisdom in order to embrace that wisdom which never perishes. And that's Jesus. It strikes me that so much of the deconstruction conversation and so much of the justice conversation and so much of every conversation I hear nowadays, which seems to keep Christians riled up, at least the ones that are online. I get a different sense when I talk to people who don't know what Twitter is. But it seems to me That's so much of what riles people up today and seems to stir them up as a philosophy, as wisdom. It's going to be outdated with the next journal article. It's going to be reframed with the next book. But not Jesus. Not Jesus. If we want an enduring truth, an enduring wisdom, an enduring understanding of how to live for God. We need only look at Jesus. The Bible won't have new footnotes. There'll be no updates. It's all right there, sufficient and true and authoritative. We need but open the talking book and let God speak. Now, this wisdom which Jesus is here, it's not just the wisdom of a kind of philosophy of a kind of kingdom orientation to the world, it is another way in which Paul is talking about salvation. And he unpacks what he means by this wisdom in our fourth and final fact. I would paraphrase it this way, Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. And I I summarize or I arrive at that summary just by looking at how Paul further defines wisdom, this salvation from God. He says that Jesus is righteousness or justification and sanctification or holiness and redemption. Jesus' righteousness and sanctification, that's my sermon subject, all the rest of this was introduction. Righteousness (laughs) and sanctification and redemption. Some scholars have have maybe gotten a little bit too cute, but but it is true. You look at the scope of the Bible that they say, hey, righteousness refers to our past and sanctification, our present, and redemption, our future. I'm not sure that Paul has that sweep of things in mind, though that is true in the rest of the, the, the biblical literature. But he is nevertheless using the language of the courtroom, the temple, and the marketplace. That Jesus is our justification. He is our righteousness. And the question for us again now is how do we live and experience this such that it leads to renewal? We've said it already in part. It means we have to stop looking for other grounds of justification with God. How easy the heart drifts toward that. Thank you for turning off that alarm. That's not my timer. (laughs) 
how easy the heart drifts toward other bases of justification with God. I was trying to think about how we might illustrate the renewal that comes from experiencing this truth. About three weeks ago, it was my pastoral privilege and pleasure to appear in court in support of a 15-year-old man, young man in my congregation who had been arrested um, for um, grand theft auto, brandishing a firearm, and attempting to elude the police. He had been serving for a little while, maybe about a month or so, in the city jail there, and had been out with an ankle monitor and was back in court to sort of hear the final disposition of his case. So I dropped my son off at school and drove to the courthouse. I got there about an hour early because courthouses make me nervous. So I need to sit outside for about half an hour just to pray. And I went in on time. They were late, so I was freshly nervous. We get called into the courtroom. I'm still praying. While we waited to appear in the courtroom, his father was constantly in his ear, you know, just trying to exhort him to, to do right. He's a good kid. He really is. And uh, we go into the courtroom, and the district attorney, in some move of God, has decided that he would risk his capital to argue for this kid's case to effectively be suspended. That he would have the monitor removed from his ankle when 30 days had elapsed, and he would not have to serve any time. He'd be on probation. He would, um, of course, uh, uh, sort of comply with the terms of his probation. And in one year's time, he could reappear in the courtroom if he had complied with probation and argue for the complete dismissal of all charges. It was stunning for two reasons. One is the generosity. I'll tell you about the second in a moment. And I remember looking at him saying, do you realize what's happening? And when the judge heard the DA's recommendation, the judge looked at him and seemed to ask in so many words, do you realize what's happening? You could get a minimum of five years and up to life in prison for the charges that are in front of you. This 15-year-old boy. I looked at him and his face was placid. He looked at me to be overwhelmed. And you can understand that, can't you? Five years to life and you're 15? Never been in trouble before? And his attorney turned to him and seemed to be saying, do you realize the gift you're being given? I don't think he did. We walked out the courtroom and I pulled him aside. I drew him close and I looked at him. I said, you may not know what's happening right now, but let me tell you what happened 35 years ago. I was your age in a courtroom like this with a felony. Never been in trouble before. And I was sitting there waiting to hear the verdict. And I thought for sure, though I had been an A student and, let's face it, just stellar on the basketball court, I was sure <laughs> my life was over. And as the judge is working through his documents, in walked my mom's pastor, Reverend F.D. Betts, who had pastored that church when Tommy died 55 years 
old man by that time. His, the white in his eyes is kind of a bluish gray. He always smelled of too much cologne. And he always greeted me and says, I'm going to get you a job on a garbage truck. And he walked in, and he didn't have his preaching robe on, but I could swear the man was floating into the courtroom. And the, the, Lord, the judge looked up, and he saw him, and he named him. He said, Reverend Betts, um, please come to the, to the bench. Are you here for this young man? And he said, yes, Your Honor, I am. And he walked up, and he spoke to the judge in hushed tones for about two or three minutes. And then he came back and he walked back by me and I got too much cologne again. And he kind of looked at my mom with those sad eyes and he kind of nodded. And the judge, for reasons I don't understand, looked at me and said, your case is continued. And I walked out of that courtroom not knowing what happened, what gift had been given to me. 35 years later, I'm sitting there with this young man and it's coming home to me. That I've been forgiven that my record has been expunged. And more than that, how inadequate are human court systems because we can only declare someone not guilty, but in the gospel, God declares us positively righteous. Not only not guilty, but all the righteousness of my son has been accredited to your account. Paul now has us in the courtroom. He's saying Jesus is our salvation. He's our great attorney. He's the pastor that appears on our behalf, and he's the one who leaves the room, and based upon his credibility, we are righteous. There's something about continuing to look at Christ, our advocate, that renews us, especially in our fight with sin, in our struggles with guilt in our wrestlings with doubt, in our temptations which come when no one's looking. And we are, we are ready to hear the voice of the condemner. Oh, to renew the voice of the advocate and hear the not only not guilty, but the righteous declaration of God. And then just like that, we switch scenes. We move from the courtroom and then we move to the temple. For Jesus is not only our righteousness, now hear this, this is important, Jesus is also our sanctification. He's also our holiness. Now, I want to help us a little bit because I understand that we are positionally sanctified in Christ and, and there is a progress in sanctification. But here's what I discovered. You tell me if this is true or not. Here's what I discovered. We are more apt to lay emphasis on our progress in sanctification, meaning the means by which we grow in practical wholeness, then we are our position of sanctification. And you know why that is, I think? It's because law is our native tongue, not grace. We're always looking for some back door in which to import law again, to find us some new rules, to find us a fresh approach to asceticism, to find a, a, a way to sort of as it were, sort of bring under reins our struggle with sin. And that we should do, but not as if those rules are going to make us holy. What does Paul say in Colossians chapter 2? That these things have no power to subdue the flesh. All of our rulemaking, all of our asceticism, all of our religious celebrations, our Sabbath 
He says they're powerless to subdue the flesh. Who conquers our flesh? Is it not Jesus? By his spirit, he has become all the holiness we will ever need to see God. This is why we're not troubled when we read, without holiness, no man shall see God. Why? Because we have all the holiness we will ever need to be in God's presence. That Christ has become for us righteousness. He has become for us sanctification. The sacrifices of the temple are done for that one final sacrifice, which answers God's righteous requirements of the law, has been made on Calvary. And we know that that sacrifice has been accepted because three days later, God himself robbed the grave and raised his son. He is our holiness. And so the means of grace, which we use in the pursuit of a practical holiness, Lord, help us never to divorce it from the fact that Jesus is our holiness. What's it like? Well, it's like trying to add a a thimble drop of water in a glass already filled to the rim. Our efforts are that thimble. Jesus is what fills the glass. And our efforts, in some sense, reflect his glory and his lordship in our life. And we do it out of a gladness because we we want to, indeed, honor and be like Jesus. Our efforts matter, but they nowhere near matter most. It's a drop in the ocean. Jesus is our holiness, and he is our redemption. Now we're in the marketplace. We were slaves to sin. This is a slave market, to be more specific. We were slaves to sin. Sin was our master. We obeyed it. We were good slaves, too. And Christ came, gave himself as a ransom, purchased us back from that slavery. And we are now slaves to Christ. But what an easy yoke and a light burden. It's amazing that slavery to Christ feels like absolute freedom. The liberty that he gives is to be treasured. One quick thought, and we'll conclude. There is a strange kind of scarcity mentality that sneaks into our minds when we think about Jesus sometimes. And somehow we begin to imagine that Jesus is not quite enough. Not quite enough for this thing I'm struggling with. Not quite enough for this thing I keep finding myself doing. Or not quite enough for my identity or my satisfaction or those kinds of things. I think Paul is helping us to see in this verse as he says he is wisdom for us, all of us together, collectively. That is, he is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. I think he's saying in so many words that whether you struggle with a sense of being right before God or you struggle with a sense of holiness and cleanliness, purity, or you struggle with a sense of loyalty to him as master. That in all these ways and more, that Jesus is more than enough, infinitely more than enough. 
that the very idea that he's not is somehow anathema. That a scarcity mentality in Christian terms makes no sense when we serve a God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, uh, who can do anything he pleases, who sits in heaven and does whatever he pleases, who has no enemies that can rival him, who is mighty to save, whose arm is not shortened. Makes no sense to approach Jesus as if he's not enough. And the moment we begin to confess and to see and to study and to detail all the ways he keeps proving his sufficiency, in that very moment, we'll begin to feel the fact of our salvation. We'll begin to experience the renewal that comes from justification and sanctification that comes from Jesus. He is enough, beloved. Confess it and experience it. Let's pray together. Indeed, we say with the songwriter, Dear Lord, Christ is enough for me. We proclaim with the great Apostle Paul that he is our wisdom. And we marvel, Father, at how much you have given us in your Son that all your promises are yes and amen in him, and that he is the giver of life, the renewer of life, the author of life. And as we long and call upon you for renewal, help us to find it in Jesus. Help us to find it in Jesus, we pray. In his glorious name. Amen.